0: This is The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. Like many adult pleasures, poetry is an acquired taste. We don't grow up surrounded by it the way we do pop music and movies, whose conventions become second nature. Rather, poetry is to our usual ways of reading and writing as classical music is to pop, or as ballet is to dancing at parties. That's from On Getting Poetry, a feature essay in our April 2021 issue by my guest today, Adam Kirsch. Adam, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It seems like a long time ago, but it was only the summer of 2019 when Adam joined us as Poetry Editor of The New Criterion, the third Poetry Editor in the 39-year history of the magazine. Adam has, of course, been involved in the poetic life of the publication for much longer. The Thousand Wells, the first of Adam's three collections of poetry, was the 2002 winner of the New Criterion Poetry Prize, where he has subsequently served as a judge for the annual award. In his other day job, Adam is an editor of the Wall Street Journal's Weekend Review section and a regular contributor to The Atlantic and The New Yorker. He is the author of 10 or maybe it's 11 books by now, including The People and the Books, Why Trilling Matters, Who Wants to Be a Jewish Writer, and as of fall 2020, The Blessing and the Curse, The Jewish People and Their Books in the 20th Century. Most recently, Adam is the editor of Poetry, a special section in our April 2021 issue. Adam, I wonder if you would introduce your own contribution to this section by reading the opening paragraph of your essay called On Getting Poetry.
1: I'd be happy to. A subscriber to this magazine writes with a problem. Although I have advanced university degrees, I have never gotten poetry. He's not alone. I hear the same thing regularly from people who love to read novels and biographies who are undaunted by string quartets and abstract paintings, but find poetry a closed door. No one is more aware of this disconnect between poetry and the reading public than poets themselves. The debate over why poetry moved from the center of literary culture to the outskirts of the academy and how it can regain its place in the sun has been going on at least since Dana Joya's landmark essay, Can Poetry Matter?, appeared in The Atlantic in 1991. More recently, the poet and novelist Ben Lerner devoted a short book to explaining the hatred of poetry. The poet critic Stephanie Burt, perhaps taking that hatred for granted, titled a book about how to read poems, Don't Read Poetry.
0: (laughs) Has, Has poetry always been something hard to get, or is this a problem only of modern times?
1: Well, I think that in the 19th century, poetry was quite popular, but before and after that, not nearly as much. Um, so if we judge it against what was going on, particularly in America in the 19th century, where you had really popular poets like Longfellow and uh, Whittier, uh, who people would read by the fireside, they were as the fireside poets, or in England, poets like Tennyson, who uh, really had quite a large public, and their books would sell by the tens of thousands of copies. Um, that was an unusual moment where poetry sort of flourished with the beginning of mass literacy and, and the modern book market. In the 20th century, it hasn't been nearly as popular, especially the poets who are usually considered the most serious or the ones who win the prizes um, tend to be read by a pretty small audience. But in the last 10 or 20 years, with the rise of the Internet, there's this sort of new genre of poetry, insta-poetry, as it's sometimes called, that, again, has a, has a very wide readership and can reach hundreds of thousands or millions of readers, although it's not really the same kind of poetry that we think of as great poetry or that we publish or read in the New Criterion.
0: In your essay, you talk about the music of poetry. You also write that, quote, instead of being a transparent window, we look through to see what's on the other side. Poetic language is a stained glass window that captures our attention for itself. Now, for some readers, poetry's lack of clarity seems to be the problem, that poetry is a frustrating puzzle that needs to be solved. Or is the problem that we want to get what isn't always given, and rather than get, we should rather give in to poetry? Are we approaching poetry the wrong way by wanting to get it? I think that it depends on the
1: poet and what they're trying to accomplish. There are plenty of poets even now who are clearly writing about a recognizable subject, or, an emotion or an experience, telling a story. And when you read the poem, you can say, what is this poem about? Um, it's not too much of a mystery. But there's definitely a strain in modern poetry going back to the early 20th century of poetry being difficult, hard to understand, um, where you read it and you think, I don't really know what this is about. And with poems like that, I think maybe it helps to think of them the way you think of a cubist painting or abstract expressionism. If you look at a Jackson Pollock painting and you ask, what is this a painting of? What does it represent? You'll just be frustrated because it's not a painting of anything. It doesn't doesn't represent an object in the real world. And there's poetry like that, too, where you're not really supposed to know or understand what it's about or what the story is that's being told. You're supposed to take pleasure in the way language is being used.
0: So maybe it's a discomfort with language, uh, the way we are maybe more comfortable with seeing colors, even if they're abstract colors.
1: I think so, because the the thing that makes abstract poetry difficult and frustrating is that words are never abstract. Words are always referential. A word always has a meaning in a way that a splash of paint doesn't necessarily have a meaning. If you have just a, a black line or a red splash on a canvas, you're looking at something in the physical world. If you have words put together on a line, your brain always wants to put them together in a way that makes sense. So the more it refuses to make sense, the more sort of energy your brain wants to put into resolving it into a single meaning. And that's an old problem in modern poetry. There's a story about Hart Crane, that when he submitted some of his poems to Poetry Magazine in the 1920s, the editor said, "Um, I can't understand what these poems are about, you explain it to me. And he wrote a letter in which he basically said, this is why I chose this word, and this is why I chose that word, and this is what I'm trying to, to get across. So it's possible that the poet has things in mind, but just doesn't want to tell you exactly what they are. They would rather make it mysterious.
0: Yeah, It's interesting on the subject of abstraction. I'm always reminded when people have trouble with abstract painting that abstract music is something we have no trouble with. Classical music is pretty much fully abstract, aside from maybe you think, well, it sounds a bit like birds chirping or something like that, but it's always abstract, and we accept it wholeheartedly. Abstract painting, we have quite a bit of problems with, for many of us, um, and uh, as you say, abstract words may be the most difficult of all. It's
1: true, and it's, it's, I think because those other forms of art are not semantic, they don't have to be about something, whereas words are always more or less about something, But I'd say that in poetry, you're thinking about words not just for what they mean, but also for what they imply, what what their associations are, how they've been used before in other contexts, the etymology, where the word comes from, and how the word sounds, uh, sort of music that it makes when you say it out loud. So when a poet draws on all of those resources, uh, the the sort of concrete literal meaning is only one of the many things that we're paying attention to in reading a poem.
0: Mm. Uh, Going back to what you were talking about before, um, poetry is a divided field these days. On one side, we have the academic circles of insular poets who mainly write for each other. And on the other side are these insta-poets, such as Rupi Kaur, writers with wide appeal, but not necessarily a serious reputation. Why isn't poetry more a part of our national conversation, as it might have been during the days of Longfellow or even Frost?
1: Well, part of the answer, I think, has to do with literature and literacy in general, that people are just not as tuned into writing as they used to be. Uh, Obviously, in the 19th century, writing was one of the only forms of entertainment and communication that people had. Now we have music, recorded music, we have the internet, we have television and movies, um, which require less of a mental effort, in most cases, than reading something. So I can't really think of any books, any serious books that get central attention in our culture the way a movie or even a video game can do it doesn't just doesn't reach as many people um and that does sometimes give you the sense that poets are only writing for other poets that's not quite true of novelists but i think it's almost true that most novels are not read by very many people either um people are drawn to produce this art not because they think they're going to get rich or famous off of it but just because they love it and feel that they're called to
0: do it And yet these insta-poets, Rupi Kaur, I hadn't actually heard of her before you wrote about her, uh, has very wide appeal. What makes her poetry appealing?
1: Well, the insta-poets, as they're called, are named after Instagram because uh, Rupi Kaur and others put their poems on Instagram. Usually it'll be a few words or a few lines accompanied by an image. And they're usually very straightforward, inspirational um, kinds of sentiments not exactly greeting card, but but in that category, in that universe, Um, something that is not challenging, really. So people can read it easily, they can understand it easily, they can share it, and it serves that role. It's not the kind of poetry where you will be sort of confronted with something you haven't thought of before or a new use of language, which is really what's most interesting to me about poetry.
0: It's interesting you say that about greeting cards. I was just reading the greeting card industry is in uh, dire straits, so maybe insta-poetry is the future of greeting cards. Uh, who would you say was the, was the last nationally recognized poet in America?
1: I would say that probably the last poet who was both popular with a pretty big readership and also taken very seriously by critics of the literary establishment would be Robert Frost. Um, Frost, who who died in 1963, Um He wrote poetry that is... Some poems of his are are very famous and well-known because people learn them in school, and he also wrote poems that are considered some of the best in the English language. Uh, So that might be the last case where someone could do both at the same time. Even in his time, however, he was considered pretty traditional. I mean, he was living at the same time as someone like T.S. Eliot or Wallace Stevens, whose poetry is much more complicated and difficult. Um, So he was already... Already, sort of doing something that didn't seem modern at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. But of course, recently we've reevaluated uh, Frost's modernism, and he has seen, he now seems more modern than we thought. Perhaps
1: it's true. I think people who know Frost only from a few poems, like "Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening" um, or "The Road Less Traveled," would be surprised to read some of his other poems. But even when the language is clear, the ideas and the sentiments can be very challenging.
0: Mm. Now, part of your role for us is selecting new poetry for every issue. How do you make your selection each month?
1: Well, there are poets who I admire and whose work I know and who I reach out to, and then there are poets who I don't know who submit work to the magazine, and I find them that way. And usually what I'm looking for and what I think the New Criterion has always published is poetry that, as we say, is attentive to form. That is, it doesn't necessarily have to be a sonnet or it doesn't have to rhyme but it has to use language in a way that shows that the poet knows about those things and uh, has read and understands how verse moves and how words sound. It doesn't have to be uh, formalist, but it has to have some sort of formal background or knowledge involved in it.
0: When we announced your appointment here, we wrote that although it can certainly be said that we are not hostile to traditional poetic forms, our first criterion has always been to publish well-made poems that display linguistic sensitivity and aesthetic intelligence.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, the first thing is it has to be a good poem, and then I think it also has to be a good New Criterion poem, which is a world uh, of itself that is not found you know, in a lot of other places. I think a lot of the kind of work that we publish, um, it would be difficult to find in other magazines that publish poetry, like Poetry Magazine or like The New Yorker. So I'm proud of that. And I think that we offer something that uh, is important and that no one else is doing.
0: And our April issue has a special section of poetry, but poetry in translation. I wonder if you could tell us how that came about.
1: Sure. Well, every April for National Poetry Month uh the New Criterion publishes a poetry section which consists of essays and poems and i my predecessor david yezi often made it an occasion for publishing translations of classic poems and over the last two years i've done the same thing this year uh in this issue we have three uh, classic poets represented rilke the german poet Leopardi, the italian poet and a modern hebrew poet named leah goldberg all uh, in English translation, of course. And I think that it's a great opportunity to sort of reintroduce people or reintroduce them to some classic poets in other languages and to see what contemporary writers working today make of them.
0: And as you mentioned, in addition to your own essay, the April issue offers four additional features that go a long way to helping us get poetry. William Logan, the critic and poet who writes our Verse Chronicle, contributes. Our lead feature called Lowell, Uncollected. I thought this was a fascinating essay because it tells us something about poetic greatness by looking at Robert Lowell's early ungreatness. What did Lowell have to get through in his early work? Well, as as
1: William Logan writes in the essay, uh, Robert Lowell was a famously sort of uh, unconventional and troubled youth, and he dropped out of Harvard in part because he was rebelling against his family, which was an old Boston family, very prominent, um, in in particular at Harvard, where one of his relatives had been the president. And he went to Tennessee, where he wanted to meet and study with the poet Alan Tate, and ended up living in a uh, tent that he pitched on Alan Tate's lawn for a while. So then he ended up uh, studying at at Kenyon College, where one of his friends and roommates was the poet Randall Jarrell and Lowell was already writing poems that were very strong and, and the language was very robust um that didn't really sound like anyone else but as this essay shows uh weren't nearly as good as the poems he would go on to write so we're talking about between the late 1930s and the mid 1940s was really when Lowell developed as a poet and Logan picks out some poems that have never been collected in books that Lowell published in the student magazine at Kenyon and looks at how some of those early poems, which are not very good, were revised and turned into poems in some of Lowell's first books, which became famous afterwards.
0: Yeah, I love that story about the tent.
1: The the story goes that Alan Tate, he, he, Lowell turned up unannounced on Tate's doorstep and said, can I stay with you? And Tate, meaning to dissuade him, said, well, the house is full, you have to put your tent on the lawn. But Lowell, being a, a teenager and headstrong, said, okay. So he, then he got a tent and pitched it on his lawn and lived there for a few
0: <laughs> What a great story. Next up is The Divine Comedy at 700 by Daniel Mark Epstein. Dan calls Dante's masterpiece one of the strangest and most disturbing poems ever published, one that, quote, continues to challenge readers and societies. Why is that?
1: Well, this poem, which turns 700 this year, is considered one of the classics of Western literature, un- undoubtedly up there with Shakespeare as something that many people read or encounter at some point. But it comes from a world that's in many ways very different from ours, and where the references and the preconceptions can be hard to understand. And in the Divine Comedy, there's a great deal of knowledge worked into it that is no longer at our fingertips about everything from Christian theology to astronomy to ancient history and contemporary politics of Dante's own time in Florence because he was very involved in the political life of his day and was actually exiled from Florence um, as part of a political intrigue, which is when he started writing the poem. So uh, Dan Epstein, who is himself a, a very accomplished poet and biographer, take this opportunity to sort of look at the Divine Comedy again, all three parts, the Inferno, Purgatorio, and the Paradiso, and look at how, these, how this poem works and what makes Dante so great.
0: Next is Rosanna Warren's Out of the Life Lived, about the letters from James Merrill. As Rosanna writes, here was a poet whose letters served as a laboratory for his poetry How did letters and poetry come together for Merrill?
1: James Merrill was one of the, I think, one of the best poets of the later 20th century in America. He was active from the 60s through the 90s. And he had a very unusual background for a poet, which is that he came from an extremely wealthy family. His father was one of the founders of Merrill Lynch. And he grew up in a background environment that was uh, very privileged in some ways, but also emotionally very difficult and challenging in ways that he writes about. It is poetry because his parents didn't get along and were eventually divorced, and also because he was gay. And so in these, this collection of his letters, which has just been published uh, spanning his whole life, Rosanna Warren writes about how the letters show really his entire life story from, from growing up in New York to later living in Greece and Connecticut and Key West and the other people, both literary and non-literary, who figured in his life. Um, Merrill was a great himself a great formal poet, a, a great master of rhyme and meter in a way that, again, was no longer really fashionable by the time he was writing. Um, and he uses it in incredibly inventive and witty ways uh, to create effects that no one else can do. Uh, so, I, I was very glad to have Rosanna Warren, who's a, a very eminent poet and scholar, writing about this book. And she knew James Merrill and, and mentions memories of him in the piece.
0: It's a great article. I was delighted to read it. Fascinating. In our following feature, Carmine Starnino writes what might have been an essay about what he calls counterfactual anthologies. What is the role of the anthology in modern poetry? And, What does Starnino mean by counterfactual?
1: Well, Carmine Starnino is a Canadian poet and critic, and he starts out by talking about a Canadian anthology, which I imagine will not be familiar to most readers outside of Canada, and then goes on to link it to some anthologies that are better known, um, that were published in the 1960s, that, that changed the way people thought about the history of poetry. And by counterfactual, he means proposing a different way of thinking about what poetry is, or what poetry could and should be. So, for example, uh, in the 1960s, there was a famous English anthology edited by the critic Al Alvarez called The New Poetry, in which he introduced English readers to all kinds of poets like Sylvia Plath and Allen Ginsberg, who had not really been known there and who came across as very wild and very personal in a way that English poetry was not at the time. It was much more restrained and decorous. And it was it sort of shattered people's expectations of poetry and made new things possible. So this article is really a great history of how in the 20th century anthologies played this role of changing people's ideas of poetry.
0: Adam for my final question, let's go back to that reader who doesn't get poetry. Now as a dutiful new criterion subscriber, imagine this reader has just finished the poetry section. The reader has even listened to our podcast. Now, the reader wants to get more poetry. Where to next? Poetry Twitter? The Norton Anthology? Declaiming Whitman in the Park?
1: Well, it, it, the Norton Anthology is a big book and not the most user friendly, but it is a great place to start. And there are other anthologies of the same nature that I think could also be consulted from other publishers. But if you did get the Norton Anthology of Poetry, you'd be getting a lot of the best poetry in English written over the last 700 years. Um, And it would be an excellent place to start. I think there is enough great stuff in there to last you for a lifetime of reading.
0: Going back to Longfellow, you mentioned the fireside. Do we need to make poetry more a communal enterprise again, or at least a family enterprise?
1: Well, I personally was introduced to poetry by hearing it when my father read it aloud at the dinner table. And I think it's a great thing to do uh, It's wonderful to be exposed to poetry and other arts as well at home um, because you won't necessarily get the best exposure to it in school, and if everyone takes a turn reading a poem from a book that they like, it can be a wonderful introduction, especially for young readers.
0: I love that. You've been listening to The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero. Our guest has been Adam Kirsch, poetry editor at the magazine and the lead editor of the special poetry section in April. Adam, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you.